Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. We'll be looking, continuing to look at chapter 17. <clears throat> this week we have the joy of looking at the noble-minded Bereans. I'll read from verse 1 through to verse 15, and you'll see there are verses of focus from verse 10 through verse 12. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, these who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. These were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness, and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So, trouble has come upon the church at Thessalonica, and as has happened before, they need to flee to the next town where they will continue their mission. They make their way to Berea, escaping Thessalonica by night, and they, as we'll see, go straight to the synagogue of the Jews, demonstrating their commitment to their mission regardless of what potential outcomes they have experienced or might experience in the future. And they discover there a hidden jewel. These noble-minded Jews of Berea, the text telling us to consider the contrast between those who live there in Thessalonica and the Bereans. That'll be the focal point, the leverage point for us as we go through this text today. To be honest with ourselves before God and 
perceive that which is in us that is Berean, and that which is in us which is of Thessalonica. We will see what this noble mind is composed of, the warm-hearted reception of the word, the eagerness, the readiness to go, to receive the word, and to go into the action of hearing it, learning it, and studying it, which is the second part of this noble-mindedness is a diligent mind that flows from this warm heart to search the scriptures, looking for evidence upon evidence, this network of truth that either does or does not undergird the claims of Paul's gospel, God's gospel. And then the result of noble-mindedness is faith. Believing in Christ and all the fruits and benefits that come from it. And as is usual, brothers and sisters, some questions for us to receive the penetrating conviction of God to know Him and to love Him and to obey Him more fully. So have you ever considered in your mind what constitutes fertile soil? What does it mean for the soil to be fertile? It does not occur accidentally. And it takes time and attention, especially if the soil has been stripped of the required minerals and organic content. I'm speaking literally here about real soil. It has to be treated carefully and wisely to restore its fertility, to bring the necessary minerals in, to provide the necessary organic content. And it takes time and attention to the soil to restore its fertility. And it is a process that every passionate gardener will admit never ends. The soil can always be a little better. So what is the state of your soul soil? What is the state of your soul soil? Where is the fertility in your life? How does your soul receive the seed of God's word in your life? Is it Berean or is it Thessalonican soil? You see there in your map how they move somewhat to the southwest <clears throat> down to Berea, a little bit inland there from this coastal town of Thessalonica. We're told the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Let's first note the brethren even though they had faced the fury of Thessalonican powers, this church there in that town of Thessalonica, they stayed together and they continued to love Paul and Silas and to love Paul and Silas and their team. They did not give way to fear. Remember, we discussed that last time. They are enjoying the Psalm 46 experience. God is with them and He is their refuge. And though the earth give way, they will be glad, they will be still and know that He is their God, and they will walk with Him. So they kept on communicating and meeting together with one another, and in this came this plan. They kept associating with Paul, though they saw what it could mean to them. Commentary says, Hereby it appears that Paul's labor brought forth fruit in a small time. For though the brethren sent, sent forth him and Silas, yet they had joined themselves as voluntary companions to their danger 
and cross by this duty. In a world filled with persecution, and it has various forms, it starts with eyebrow raising and words of undermining and marginalization, ends up in overt persecution like what we saw happen to the household of Jason there. What will you do? Will you continue, when you, will you continue to be included amongst the brethren? And to meet together and to communicate and be a part of serving the saints of God. Even though you know that to disassociate would be safer for your life. Next. We see this word immediately. I think this points to the beautiful unity that God has established amongst the brethren. Giving them Christ's heart. Christ's mind. God's view of this earth and its Messiah and the plan for this earth and their part in it. There's no delays because of debates or disagreements because they're not looking at their own kingdom and their own threats. They're looking at God's kingdom and God's world. And so they have one mind. And in that, they prioritize the safety and mission of Paul's team. Yet later, in spite of the risk, and because of his love and concern for the church at Thessalonica, so they fled at this point, Paul sends Timothy back to them to check on them and further strengthen them in their affliction. So at that moment in time, we see the church had been planted. But yet later, Paul is still unsure of the depth and the security of those roots. We read in chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it good to be left in Athens alone and sent Timothy, our brother and minister of God and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are appointed to this. For in fact, we told you before when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and you know. For this reason, when I could no longer endure it, I sent to know your faith, lest by some means the tempter had tempted you, and our labor might be in vain. So we see that they're sent away immediately by night, not because of fear, not because of trying to protect their own lives, but because for the sake of the kingdom of God. And later, for that same purpose, they go back. Not all of them, but Timothy does. Now they knew that Paul and Silas were not safe in Thessalonica. Otherwise, they would have left in the daytime. They knew that Paul and Silas had accomplished their mission in Thessalonica. Otherwise, they wouldn't have left at all. The church is planted. It's just young. It's in the fresh germination stage. Winds and storms and things of this nature threaten such a vulnerable plant. But nevertheless, the brethren, they will continue the work of the kingdom there in Thessalonica through the word of God that they learned from Paul and Silas. They will continue to present Jesus Christ as the Messiah and call for repentance and faith in Christ. The kingdom will go on without Paul and Silas. So therefore, they can move on to new towns. And this is exactly what Jesus told them to do. Listen to the commentary. 
They had proceeded so far at Thessalonica that the foundations of a church were laid and others were raised up to carry on the work that was begun, against whom the rulers and people were not so much prejudiced as they were against Paul and Silas. And therefore, when the storm rose, they withdrew, taking this as an indication to them that they must quit that place for the present. That command of Christ to his disciples, quote, when they persecute you in one city, flee to another, unquote, intends their flight to be not so much for their own safety as in fleeing to another place to hide there as for the carrying on of their work, fleeing to another city to preach there. As appears by the reason given by Christ when he says, you shall not have gone over the cities of Israel till the Son of Man come. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 23. So this is important. Because we want to understand why Paul and Silas left. Why the brethren sent them away by night immediately. Brothers and sisters, we are Christians. We don't make our decisions based on fear. May God drive fear out of our lives. This was a decision made in boldness and confidence and the wisdom of the kingdom of God based upon the words they had already heard from the Lord Jesus Christ. So they go to Berea about this town. It's a terraced Macedonian town. It was located about 45 miles west-southwest of Thessalonica. And it was off the main road into the south of the Via Ignatia, that Roman road. They had cut south off of that road to get to Berea. It sat on a slope overlooking the Haliakmon River on the southernmost pass to Mount Bermion. So it's a scenic location. Today it is known as Varia. A traveler going to Athens would pass through this town. It is often also spelled Berea. Cicero calls it an out-of-the-way town, a way of indicating that it was not on the main road. Livy calls it a noble town. It had been under Roman control since 168 B.C. And inscriptions confirm the existence of Jews being there. And today a colorful monument to Paul, marks the spot where he was said to have preached. Silas is explicitly said to be with Paul at this time. And Timothy is noted in verse 14, so he also came along or followed later. So this town is not the prominent type of town that we have seen before. So, so why Berea? Why go there? Well, likely because there was a synagogue there. So Paul and Silas were probably unwilling to flee that region altogether at that time. They were right there on the port. They probably could have taken the safest path. That would have been to board a vessel, probably there at the port of Thessalonica and head to Athens like when they later flee Berea. So this is another way that we see Paul's dedication to the mission he was given as a mission to the Jews first. So he went to Berea to be faithful to his mission. Commentary says, but the constancy of Paul is incredible because having had such experience of their stubbornness and malice of his nation, he doth never cease to try whether he can bring any to Christ. Namely, seeing he knew that he was bound both to Jews and Gentiles no injury of men could lead him away from his calling. 
So all the servants of Christ must so wrestle. Listen now. So all the servants of Christ must so wrestle with the malice of this world that they shake not, they shake not off Christ's yoke with what injuries soever they be provoked. So this certainly applies to our lives, to the calling that's been placed upon your life as father, as mother. Think of the calling that is growing in your lives, young men, young ladies. Think particularly of child rearing and raising your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord and the malice of this world that would threaten and tempt you to shake off Christ's yoke with various injuries. Look to Paul and his dedication. So what does he do? He goes straight to the Berean synagogue. This is a scenic area. There may have been some nice hiking trails or whatnot. Paul is not on a vacation. Life, brothers and sisters, Paul shows us, is not a playground. There is joy to be had in the journey, but every step and everything we do, even the rest we take, is a form of battle. Life is not a playground. It is a battleground. Our breaths are limited. Our heartbeats are limited. The number of steps we have are limited. Moms and dad, the number of days you have in your home with your little ones is limited. Oh, treasure the time. Treasure the time. Count your days. When you see words like immediately in the word of God, pause and count your days. Because our life is but a fleeting vapor. So he goes to the Jews, to their synagogue, just as his Lord commanded him to do, straightway. Where the practice of reading Scripture on the Sabbath was firmly in place. We've read it already from Acts 15. It was part of their reasoning at the Jerusalem Council for giving the ruling that they gave. They said, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now we see that according to God's perfect decrees and providence, some hardening against God's word had taken place in Thessalonica. So the word of God as it comes to you, children, listen now. I hope I have every child's attention in this room that you can look at me and understand what I'm saying to you. When you hear the word of God here and in your home, adults too, one of two things is happening inside of your heart. You are either growing warm and fertile and drawing near to his word like the Jews in Berea, becoming noble-minded, or you are hardening yourself against God's word like those in Thessalonica. They had had Moses read in the synagogue for generations, just like the Bereans. But there's a difference here. Oh, may God grant to us to be like the Bereans. Amen. Little children, do you agree with this? Is that your heart's desire as well, to be like the Bereans? May it be so for all of us. And to think of all that Paul has endured at the hands of the Jews so far. This kind of gets to the idea of his faithfulness. Hated, attacked, maligned, assaulted. Not just with hard words, but with hard stones. Left 
before dead. Maybe he was dead. Beaten with rods. Falsely accused. Bloodied with broken skin. Imprisoned in the stocks on the nasty dirt floor. And chased away at night multiple times. And I probably left some things out. Yet, Paul remains faithful to God's call to preach first to the Jews. Now, if you're a pragmatic type, at this point you might have said to Paul, look man, Thessalonica has got a great port. You're probably going to get killed by the Bereans. In fact, if you're really devoted to your mission, you'll just abandon this region altogether and go somewhere where they're not as likely to kill you and where the people of Thessalonica can't come and find you and maybe kill you then. But Paul does not give way to any kind of thinking like this. He's unwilling to pass by any point of duty and justify it with future duty that he passed, that he does to somehow make excuses for not doing his past duty. Commentary says, though the Jews at Thessalonica had been their spiteful enemies and for aught they knew, the Jews at Berea would be so too. Yet they did not therefore decline paying their respect to the Jews, either in revenge for the injuries they had received or for fear of what they might receive. If others will not do the, oh, listen to this, if others will not do their duty to us, yet we ought to do ours to them. This is the turning the other cheek that the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of. Paul arrives in Berea, in Berea with the one side beaten by the Thessalonians, if you will, ready to turn the other cheek to the Bereans for the sake of the glory of God, because of His love for God, because of His desire to know Christ and knowing that His good works show forth the glory of God. So what do we discover here in Berea? That the Jews of Berea are more noble than the Jews of Thessalonica. The text says these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. This is the summary statement that calls us to compare all of these between the Bereans and those in Thessalonica and, and do the same within our own souls. Luke points us to compare the Jews of Berea and Thessalonica as we go through this text. Recall the Jewish response to the gospel in Thessalonica. So keep this in mind as we're going through the Berean response. Most of the Jews were not persuaded there in Thessalonica they did not submit to the multiple definitive biblical proofs about the Messiah, nor to the multiple eyewitness testimonies regarding Christ Jesus being of Nazareth being that Messiah. Proving themselves to be irrational, bound by their sinful desires and goals, and already advanced along the reprobate road. This is the opposite of noble-minded. This is that hard path. The seed falls on and the devil comes and snatches it away. They were not persuaded, we are told. This is to not allow oneself to be persuaded. This is a self-deception. To receive withholding belief even when the force of the argument is invincible. To refuse it. To not comply with it. To be disobedient. To be stubbornly unbelieving. This is a hardening of their own hearts. And it points to underlying sinful pre-commitments. Stubbornly holding on to these things even unto self-destruction. The soul soil trampled down hard by sin with no room for God's Word. Hostile to God's Word, not hospitable. This leads to envy 
instead of fruitful belief, we see the envy. Why? Because the gospel's threatening their personal agenda. They're holding on to their own kingdom. The Brians, not the same. These envious Jews are burning with zeal. They're heated. They're boiling over. They're, they have hatred. They have anger. They have envy. They have malice even towards God's people, not the Bereans. Love, patience, service. They didn't want to lose their church. They didn't want to lose the Jews and Gentiles from their church. They were committed to their church growth and they were prepared to destroy any other movement that threatened it because of the subsequent loss of cultural influence, power, and wealth. These are the Thessalonican idols. And as we come to the end of our sermon today, may we pray that God would pull these same kinds of idols out of our lives. They see all their evil desires being swept away into the hands of God's church and they covet it for themselves like injured, cornered, wild animals. And you can hear them, look, we just want to see our church grow. We don't want this strange new doctrine to come in and mislead God's people. You can hear all their arguments. But underneath it all is covetousness. But in contrast, we are told that the people... The Jews there in Thessalonica, what are they? They are fair-minded. And this word here means well-born. It means of a noble family. It means to be of a noble mind. We see some uses in the New Testament. Luke 19, 12, the nobleman of the parable of the talents. So Luke 19, 12, he's called a nobleman. Same word. So here we see this Greek word is used as the key descriptor of the good man who in this parable is the metaphor for Christ for God. The text says, Therefore he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So this noble-mindedness is best on display in Jesus Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 1.26 says that not many noble are called. This gets to the idea of having a noble status and yet not being, being noble-minded. Noble-mindedness, we'll see in one, Psalm 112, leads to nobility, leads to dynasty, leads to appropriate high levels of regard and respect in the world that God brings to those families. But that can fade away, the respect can persist, and at that point they're just noble and not noble-minded. Paul says to the Corinthians, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So in the flesh, being from a noble family of an elevated social status, but without a noble mind, is a hindrance to belief. Not many noble are called. So as we ponder this idea in the normal course of the generations to come, noble-minded families, in general, are elevated by Christ, and thus the origin of their status, which is noble-mindedness, becomes synonymous with the name of their status, nobility. Fearing God is what this is all about. Fearing God and greatly delighting in His Word. This is the foundation of noble-mindedness, and it goes on to generational fruit and might that endures. What are you talking about, Pastor? Psalm 112. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in His commandments. 
His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in His house. And His righteousness endures forever. Oh, fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers, do you want success for your children and grandchildren? Here's the path. It doesn't matter how cool your children or grandchildren are. If they're lacking in the coolness department, that's okay. That's okay. We don't want to be lacking at all in the nobility department. That we would be upright. That we would delight in His commandments. And that we would fear the Lord. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. This should, young men, this should be a great encouragement to you as you're, you're considering your future. Look to the Lord. He loves you. He has a plan for you. Nobility is yours in Christ. He is the most noble one. And we are in Him. Webster's gives us this idea of nobility. Great, elevated, dignified, being above everything that can dishonor a reputation. Noble mind, like noble courage or noble deeds. These, this is exalted. This is elevated. This is sublime. And then when it happens through the years and through the generations, it, it causes us to think back and think of these ancient and splendid families and then as noble by descent, distinguished from commoners by rank and title as a noble personage. This is someone who's free, who's generous, who has a liberal and noble heart of an excellent disposition, ready to receive the truth. Now, in your life, brothers and sisters, let's let the light of God's Word and Spirit shine into our own minds and hearts right now. In your life, in your home, are you more like the Thess Thessalonians, the Thessalonians, or the Bereans? If we could put a sign up, over your door, to say, welcome to Berea, or to say, welcome to Thessalonica, or over your heart, what would it say? Which trajectory defines you and your family? Now, Paul gives us so much information, the glory awaiting those who have faith, the blessings that are there, afflictions, tribulations, yes, deliverance, even more so. Not so for these unbelieving Jews. These exact unbelieving Jews stand as the examples of all the promises that Jesus made about the coming wrath of God upon those who turn their back on Him. So this serves as a meaningful warning and encouragement for any of us to know that these warnings are for the people of God. These encouragements are for the people of God. That even in this day, we would leave this place having repented and grown up in devotion and love to God more so than when we arrived. So what are the marks of the noble mind? Number one, receiving the word with all readiness. And this is a warm heartedness. This is open doors. This is a hospitable attitude towards God and his word. This idea of received is warm-hearted affection and openness towards the Word that leads to a, a happy welcome, an interaction, and then submission, glad submission. 
It's like if the king comes to visit your house, the good king comes to your house, you want to greet the good king and enjoy serving him and listening to him and obeying him. It means to take hold of with the hand, to take up, to receive. It means to receive a visitor as in hospitality. It even means along the lines of adoption to receive into one's family, to bring up or to educate. It means to receive favorably, to give ear to, to embrace, to make one's own, to approve of it, to not reject it. And it, it also has to do the idea of sustaining and, and bearing it and enduring it. Can you see how much different this is from the way the Thess- Thessalonian Jews approach the Word of God? You can, just, you can just hear them, see them nitpicking, finding fault with every little thing that Paul would say. Oh, well, I'm not sure that's exactly what that word means right there. Not for the sake of truth, but for the sake of rejecting the truth. Commentary says, They received the Word with all readiness of mind, They were very willing to hear it, presently apprehended the meaning of it, and did not shut their eyes against the light. They attended to the things that were spoken by Paul, as Lydia did, and were very well pleased to hear them. They did not pick quarrels with the word, nor find fault, nor seek occasion against the preachers of it, but they bade the word welcome. And they put a candid construction upon everything that was said. And herein they were more noble than Jews in Thessalonica. But they walked in the same spirit, and in the same steps with the Gentiles there, of whom it is said that they received the word with joy of the Holy Ghost and turned to God from idols. This, this is true nobility. So, unlike the hard-hearted, self-deceived Thessalonians who rejected the word and then rebelled against the truth and treated the gospel as an enemy in order to protect their own pre-commitments, The Bereans opened their arms to the Word of God. They brought it into their minds with welcome and with affection. Like receiving a friend or adopting a child. Willing to bear whatever consequences flowed from loving and submitting to and living out the truth. They had a freer thought and they lay more open to conviction, the commentary tells us. They were willing to hear reason and admit the force of it. I really like that. This is, this, to me, this kind of puts the needle on one of the key points. Are you willing to admit to the force of biblical truth as it approaches your mind and brings conviction into your life and calls you to see things about yourself that are not pleasing to you? Or prompts you to have to let go of some of your little pet doctrines or beliefs that are not actually true. Pricks you in that spot where you justify your sin and your lack of faith. Where we all need it. See, when you admit to the force of it in that moment, to the extent that you do that, you're Berean. And then to subscribe to that which appeared to them to be truth, though it was contrary to their former sentiments. This was more noble. So you see an openness, a willingness, and doesn't it just connect right in with humility? This awareness that we are this curious blend of dignity and depravity. And part of our depravity is thinking that much of our, what we think of dignity is actually depravity. Or infused with depravity. 
Oh, may God break us. In addition, we see that they receive the word, but with all readiness. This is the next category. Not only warm-hearted and open and, and have hospitable with affection towards God's word, but they have a zeal, a spirit, not like the zeal and the passion and the covetous hatred that we saw, but a zeal that comes from Christ, where they are inclined, they are ready, they are leaning into God's Word. Now look, this is the opposite of reluctance or resistance. It goes back to the hymn that we sang at the beginning of today's worship. Are you here with gladness, with a hungry heart, and you're going to shake yourself to be giving your attention to the Word of God and to the worship today? Hey, look, if you want to stand up in the back of the assembly to stay awake, that is a way of praising God if you're having a hard time staying awake during worship. If you're nodding off, I, I encourage you to go and stand in the back of the service if necessary. And what will that do? That will show to yourself and to everyone else how serious you are, that you are inclined into God's Word like this. The sluggishness of our souls, we need to first look to our souls instead of how busy we've been the last three weeks. To think this through. And to understand the treasures that are set before us like the Bereans did. Think of the sprinter. Runners, take your marks. And they're just, are they just kind of standing there, leaning back? Yeah, I'll get to it. Bang goes the gun. And like, oh, and they start running? No. No, no. <laughs> and they've been training. And they're there on their mark. And they're leaning forward. This is the readiness of mind. It comes from a warm heart. The desire to receive the word with that kind of readiness of mind. They're eager. They're leaning in. They're, they're beating their bodies as needed, if you will, not in some aesthetic you know, self-flagellation to earn God's honor, but they are disciplining their bodies and their minds to go to God's word. And they do that because their heart is warm. And this nobility, it begins with hearts towards the word, and towards its ministers, and it causes an inclination, a readiness, an eager to hear, eagerness to hear and learn the word, and to bear with all of your own and the weaknesses of others to get there and to do it. What is the state of your heart toward God? What is the state of your heart towards God, towards his word and towards his ministers in light of what we see of the Brians? Do you feel this affection this warm-hearted affection and desire towards God's Word. When you awaken in the morning, is that where you want to go? When it's time for family worship, are you glad to be opening your Bibles? Is everyone in your home going and getting their Bibles and there's extra Bibles laying around? Or is it just like... Mm. What's happening in your soul? What's happening in your family? Which way is it? Is your life and your home marked by affection and gratitude towards God's Word? Is your heart ready and leaning towards God's Word or more eager for other things? Oh, do you have to rouse yourself up for that movie you want to watch? Or that website you want to look at to get today's news? Do other loves crowd your soul, leaving little room for God's Word? Is your heart more hospitable toward these other things that become idols, even if they're good things? Or do you burn mostly for God? 
and for his word. You see, this is the standard that we are called, by which we are called to examine ourselves. Now, I think if any of us are honest right now, we're going to see there's a gap here. Whatever level of affection that God has given you for his word, his word on your best day, you see it doesn't live up to this level of affection and warmth, does it? We're going to get to how to deal with that gap at the end of today's sermon, okay? So the next mark of being noble-minded is to search the Scriptures daily to test the message. So this warm-heartedness, this readiness doesn't just stay on the starting line. When the pistol fires and the Bible is opened and the conversation starts, they are off. There's no time to lose. Daily, we are told. <clears throat> the warm-hearted and eager soul hears the starting gun and leaps forth not only without delay, but also with ongoing diligence. In the Christian life, brothers, it's not a sprint. It's not a marathon. Listen now, it's a sprint marathon. And by God's grace, we can soar like the eagles as we go on in Him. You might be tempted to think, well, it's a marathon. It's true, but it's also a sprint. Meaning, don't waste any time in your pursuit of God and His glory. God tells us how to rest. Rest and leisure, these are not wastes in God's economy as long as it's done properly. All right, next. Please note their motive to find out the truth. What was the motive of those in Thessalonica that led to envy? You can tell it was to keep their stuff. It was to keep their kingdom. It was to keep their way of life. It was to build their church. They were not motivated by the truth. They were unwilling to let go of some things. They were unwilling to be revealed as mistaken. They were unwilling to be revealed as involved in something that had no future. They were unwilling to let go of that. Is that true of you? What is there in your life that you're unwilling to let go of? To that extent, you cannot be noble-minded. And so the motive impacts the noble-mindedness. The noble-mindedness cannot be untethered from the motive. You cannot have this kind of readiness of mind and warmth towards the Word of God if you're clinging to your own kingdom. None of us can. We will have an inner hostility to the truth of God to the extent that we cling to our own kingdoms. So apparently those in Berea were these type of free people, more so. This holy detachment that we've talked about before. At peace with God's will, whatever He shows them for it to be. So how did this show up? They're not afraid of the truth. They're not afraid of the Scriptures. Okay? And on the other hand, they're not naive. They're not undiscerning. They're not just going to fly along with Paul because he speaks in tongues and lots of people get healed. He's some famous celebrity. They want the truth. And this idea of searching the Scriptures is like a thorough judge they're going to examine it. They're going to investigate it. They're going to scrutinize it. They're going to sift it. They're going to question it. It's even got a forensic type of definition to it. And, and it's an interrogation. So they're taking Paul to task. 
But you can tell it's not done in an ugly fashion. They're very serious about Paul proving to them from the word of God that the Messiah had to die and had to be raised from the dead and that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed that Messiah. And they're very serious about him proving this to them. So the warm-hearted welcome receives the word, but not with gullibility like the naive, but with such a desire for truth that the noble mind must be intellectually satisfied that the biblical evidence supports the truth claims that are being given. Each piece of biblical evidence was scrutinized by them, looked at from every angle before accepting it as a piece of evidence that would be allowed into the argument. And these accepted truths were then lined up and connected to create one cohesive view of reality that was true because it was given to them by Jesus. It was given to them in the Word of God. And look, every preacher, every true preacher longs for every person who listens to them preach to be just like this. I mean, what if, what if you guys said, hey, you know what, after the sermon from now on, we're going to eat, and then we just want to talk about what you preach, because we're not really sure. Let's go to the Word together more deeply, or something like that, or emails, or phone calls, or anything like that, that said, you know, let's really make sure that what you're saying is true. Do you know what preachers say to that? Good preachers? Hallelujah, praise be to God. Not, well, you know, I said it, so it's true. <laughs> no. Also note, they did not search elsewhere, but rather only the Scripture to decide if Paul was preaching the truth. So that's important. They didn't search the Scriptures and psychology, or the Scriptures and history, or the Scriptures and Paul's lineage. They searched the Scriptures which is what Paul was giving to them. And we have to recall what he was preaching because it's not given to us here in this text. Verses 2 and 3, we, we look at it most of the time. I don't know, I would say most of the sermons, we, we, this comes up. Verse 2 and 3, Paul's quoting from what we've been told in Luke 24 twice. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying... This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So we can, by inference, I think, safely say this is what Paul preached also to the Bereans, the same message, that the Messiah had to suffer and die, the Lamb of God principle, the necessity of the Messiah becoming the substitutionary atonement for our sins, and this is the only path to forgiveness. Have you trusted that this is true of the Messiah? And the Messiah had to be raised again from the dead. This is the necessity of the Messiah's eternal, invincible life as the only hope of eternal life in Him. His resurrection is our only path to hope and sanctification. They had to know this. Now, this would have been the same preaching that Jesus had given to them. I'm going to read the Scripture from the road to Emmaus. I'm going to read the Scripture right before He was ascended. And it's beautiful because on the road to Emmaus, resurrection day, the day that Jesus came out of the grave... This message is given to them. And then as he's about to be ascended, the same message is given to them. So during these 40 days, Jesus is teaching them about the kingdom of God. And this is the message of the kingdom of God. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I hope that many of you, your mind is now flashed back to the Messiah study. 
that we did. That may be the, the pile of memory cards that you have at home. Luke 24, this is right before his ascension. He said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. This is the gospel message that Paul gave to the Bereans. This is the message that they received. Their readiness of mind to receive the word was not such that they took things upon trust, swallowed them upon an implicit faith. No, but since Paul reasoned out of the scriptures and referred them to the Old Testament for the proof of what he said, they had recourse to their Bibles, turned to the places to which Paul referred them. They read the context. They considered the scope and the drift of them. They compared them with other places of Scripture, examined whether Paul's inferences from them were natural and genuine, and his arguments upon them cogent and determined accordingly. Whereas by this time in Thessalonica, they were already stirring up the crowds and the baser men and attacking Jason's home and violating his rights as a fellow human being. They did this daily, brothers and sisters. When this message of eternal life came to them, they prioritized it properly. Let that sink in. When the Holy Spirit plows hearts ahead of time, the soul soil will be fertile. It'll be prepared. It'll be able to spot and prioritize properly and then eager to receive the seed of the Word of God and this fertility it is not a passing fancy of the flesh that fades away or only rarely germinates, but rather God's holy presence in those who are truly born from above brings forth ongoing and persistent hunger and thirst for His truth, which is a fruit of having received His truth. Daily bread and hunger for more. Searching the Scriptures must be our daily work. Those that heard the Word in the synagogue on the Sabbath day did not think that this was enough. Did they get up earlier in the morning? Did they stay up later at night? Did they take time off from work? We don't know, but it says they did this daily. But they were searching it every day in the week that they might improve that they had heard the Sabbath, what they had heard the Sabbath before and prepare for what they were to hear the Sabbath after. So do you do this with God's Word? Do you go to it daily? And, and, you know, what we see here also is this idea of our common study here on Sundays impacting our individual and family studies throughout the week as well. Making sure that we have a firm grasp on the concepts that are being laid out before us in the sermons as individuals and as families and as a community. Because, look, I didn't choose for us to be right here in this text today. Do you know that? God did. We made a choice early on, your church leaders, of what we would study. And here we are now. And so by providence, we have to believe that this is very important for us as a community, as a people, to understand and live this out together. And that means talking about it, thinking it through, 
learning it, applying it, asking questions, growing together, sharing the fruits of it. Brothers and sisters, trust no man's preaching until you've proven to yourself via your own study of the word that he is indeed preaching the truth. No matter how many books he has published, no matter how many denominations he has founded, no matter how many followers he's had, no matter how glib he is, don't, no matter how many podcasts he's been on, no matter blogs, do I need to go on? You see my point. Trust no man's preaching until you have personally proven to yourself via your own study of the word that he is indeed preaching the truth to you. And God gives you helpers in your life. To children, you have your mother and father. Wives, especially, you have your husbands. Church members, we have one another. Church members, you have your church leaders. There are processes we can go through to check these things. It's one of the problems of the world that we live in today is the access, the free access to information implies that you individually should try to figure it out on your own whether or not it's true. Next principle we see here, and this is very important, especially when you think about covenant theology. The gospel in the New Testament was first proven true by the gospel in the Old Testament. Let that sink in. The gospel in the New Testament was first proven true by the gospel in the Old Testament. This gospel that Paul is preaching is the gospel that he's going to write down when he sends out the epistles. And he's preaching this gospel to them from the Old Testament. And these Bereans are commended for not believing it until it was proven to them from the Old Testament. Brothers and sisters, there's one consistent message of gospel salvation from Genesis to Revelation. There are not two ways of salvation. It's not Jews one way and Gentiles another. The Jews and Gentiles are saved only by Christ. There's only one way to be saved, and that is through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting in Him, not this dispensational, hyper-dispensational nonsense that's out there that says the Jews can be saved whether they believe in Jesus Christ or not. Which has a lot of implications in foreign policy that I'm not going to even go into. Every New Testament doctrine can be demonstrated from the Old Testament. That is an expansion of this basic principle. If, if someone's telling you they have a, a, a new doctrine from the New Testament that's not in the Old Testament, don't believe them. Beware of supposed doctrine from the New Testament that's totally new with no support in the Old Testament. This is why we have so many bizarre things springing up in today's world. Because understanding the New Testament requires understanding the Old Testament. It's why Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and other cults of that nature also flourished because we didn't have Old Testament grounding when those things popped up. What are the results of being noble-minded? Faith. Belief. So fertile soil gives, gives way to faith. Those seeds germinate, they grow. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. God had blessed this Berean community. Not just the noble-minded Jews, but the Gentiles, men and women. Not just the poor, but the prominent and rich as well. God is no respecter of persons. And when God moves and plows hearts, and the Word of God comes, whew, this is what we see. And so, the, and so we want to be encouraged because, you know, we can look at the world around us. We can experience so many times kind of what Paul has experienced in all these places. 
and just lose hope. Don't do that. You never know when you might bump into that Berean soil and that individual that you're talking to. You never know. Or that family. Reminds me of a, a couple there in, in Heritage. I think they have some, at Heritage, they might have some kids as well. You know, they showed up and they were involved in the church and, you know, getting involved and really loving it. And then they came to faith. <laughs> and, then, and then they became Christians. And now they're, they're just growing in the Lord and loving the Lord. You just never know what God's going to do. He had plowed in their hearts. So many of them believed. Look at this word, therefore. It's because their soul soil held the prior work of God. It received the word of God and the almighty seed, therefore sprung up to eternal life. And this goes back to Luke 8 and the parable of the good soil. You know, you want to call it the parable of the sower, but I think it's really better called the parable of the soils because that's the unique thing that we see going on here. Listen to what Jesus said in verse 15 when he's describing it. He says, but the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. And this word noble, it's a different Greek word. It means beautiful, handsome, excellent, eminent, precious, suitable, commendable, admirable. And it's really a synonym for this other Greek word for noble that we have in today's text. So we already see this idea describing the good soil and you see it has a heart component. It has an emotional component. It has a mind component. And it has a will component where our entire being is brought into hearing, receiving, loving, and believing God's word. So many of those Jews believe the gospel. It's because God had prepared them. They engaged with the word with humility and with affection. And because of this, faith came out. Is faith a gift from God? Can you generate it in your own soul? No, no, you cannot. But did you know that even before you have faith, God is preparing the soul of your soil? The soil of your soul. There's only one letter difference there, right? Or two? <laughs> one. He's preparing the soil of your soul even before you have faith. Think about that. He gives us everything we need to be saved. Contrast, though, that only some of the Jews believed at Thessalonica. And we see that this kind of stuff appears contagious. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we be contagious Bereans for, for ourselves and for others, not contagious like, the, like it was at Thessalonica. Berea, they heard the word with unprejudiced minds. They, many believed and many more Jews than at Thessalonica. Please note that God gives grace to those whom he first inclines to make a diligent use of the means of grace and particularly to search out the scriptures. And also, not a few of the Greeks and prominent women as well as men. God is no respecter of persons. He's saving people from every tribe and tongue and nation, men, women, boys, girls, rich, young of every type, healthy, sick, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Praise be to God. So, I've done most of the question asking along the way today. And I want to circle back to this idea of, I mean, hopefully you've bumped into that gap inside yourself. 
<clears throat> now, it could be that Christian duty could be described as what takes place to bridge that gap between affection and action. Have you ever pondered that before? That Christian duty may be what occurs for Christians. It's from faith, but we know we're stepping into something that we don't want to be doing, that we'd rather be somewhere else. We sense it, but we do it anyways, and we do it from faith. So I want to talk to you about some fleshly responses to what you may be bumping into today, what, what I've bumped into as a result of this text as well. On the one hand, there's always the two ditches, right? On the one hand, both of these are fleshly. Both of these are not from faith. Both of these are from the flesh. On the one hand will be to, to knuckle under, to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, and to get her done. White-knuckling it. Giving no thought to your inner world and the state of your heart towards God. Okay, that's kind of in the legalistic realm, if you will. And it always fails. By God's grace, He's good to us. He says, all right, you're not listening. And He graciously gives us failure. Now then, if we still don't have faith, we will often swing over into the other ditch. The ditch of apathy. Complacency. Minimizing God's standards. It's not that important. I'm doing okay. And turning away from the reality of what we're called to do. And it can go back and forth. This yo-yo life that many people lead. I think if we're honest with our souls, we've probably all seen this kind of fleshly uh, oscillations that occur. So does anybody want to live that life? That is a frustrating life. But by God's grace, instead of these flashes of fleshly legalistic zeal and these dark times of deeper apathy and licentiousness that can go back and forth in various degrees, we want to take the path of faith. And this involves, now listen, two things, very important, an inner and an outer response. You'll note the legalistic response is primarily just an outer response. I'm just going to do it. Whereas on the other hand, the giving way, the apathy, is all, often an inner response of the wrong sort. Woe is me. I'm terrible. Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'll just eat worms. And this self-deprecation that's constantly going on inside of our minds so there's an improper inward and outward response that comes from the flesh as well. Don't do that. So what does faith grant to us? First of all, faith makes us unafraid to acknowledge the gap between our affections and what we're called to do. Okay? Now see, this is really important because especially for children, you might look like, think about it. Have you ever looked at your older siblings and say, look, they just love to follow God? Or looked at, you know, somebody mature in the church and say, they just love to follow God. What's wrong with me? I don't love to follow God like they do. I must not even be a Christian. What is wrong with me? You see? But faith understands that this is a part of understanding ourselves and a part of sanctification. So, number one, faith is unafraid to acknowledge this gap before God and repent. 
Lord, I do not love you or your ways or your word like Jesus does, like Jesus did. I admit that I continue to be an unfaithful servant in my heart today. And you admit that to him. Because that's where it starts, on the inside. And you repent of it. You acknowledge that there must be just terrible continued blindness that you can love these other things more than you love him and not have the right priority. And then in this repentance, something's wrong here, Lord. Maybe you don't even fully understand it. You ask for more faith. Father, please give me more faith. Please grow my faith. Please give me more affection for you in my heart and for your word. Give me the heart of Christ, O Father, towards you and your word. And in this will be a cry for a pure heart. You know the idols. We're not just randomly distracted from God's word and find other things more pleasing. No, it's because they are idols in our lives. So, you know, think about the things that you think about. Think about the things that you're drawn to and that you would rather do than be in God's word. Then pray. Then be with God's people. Then do God's will. Think of those things. This is very convicting for me, for all of us. That's idolatry and it saps true affection, right? So these are the, this is the repentance. And then what do you do? Your outward response. Well, this is where it's tricky. Because what you go and do is exactly what it looked like. What you, you look at the two things. What you were doing before by the flesh and what you're doing now by the Spirit, same actions. Same things. Go and obey. Right? Now, this is what you should do, though. Obey in faith. What does that mean? That means you expect God to change your heart like you've asked Him to not even after you obey Him, but while you're obeying Him. Let me ask you this. Did they have to swim the Jordan River before it parted? Red Sea. Did they have to, you know, you see where this is going, right? What did they do? They obeyed God. What did God do? The impossible. Now look, I'm telling you, changing your heart and giving you greater love and warmth for God and His Word is a bigger miracle than parting the Red Sea or parting the Jordan. But he, that's what he does for us, his people. That's what he does for us. And he will do it, so move with expectation. And final, final word before I read Psalm 112 and pray is consider the trajectories of these two paths. Consider what happened to the Jews of Thessalonica. Consider what happened to the Jews of Berea. Consider what happened to the unbelievers at that time and the believers at that time. Which path do you want for yourself and for your family? The path of joy and gladness even in the midst of difficulties and struggle? Or temporary sense of security where you trade in your soul for the things of this world? Now look, you know, every single day in the tactical moment-by-moment decisions that you make as a husband, as a wife, as a parent, as a friend, as a church member, all of it can be traced back to this concept of trajectory.
the words that come out of our mouths, the things that we do, which way is it taking us? Well, may we, by God's grace, with ever-increasing faith, continue to put our toe in the water, even if we're afraid of how cold it is, and watch and see what God does. Hear God's word from Psalm 112 and be encouraged. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who delights greatly in his commandments. His descendants will be mighty on earth. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches will be in his house. And his righteousness endures forever. Note, coolness and sports trophies do not endure forever. Okay, nothing wrong with sports, but I think you get my point. Okay? Don't get distracted. Verse 4. Unto the upright there arises light in the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man deals graciously and lends. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. You know, this is where celebrations like All Saints Day come from. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. That's why we want to have a cemetery over here, is to display this reality to the generations that come after us. And by God's grace, we'll have a nice bell over there, and we'll ring it on All Saints Day. And we will maybe even read this section of Scripture, the righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. Now, we may forget, but God will never forget. But we'll do our very best not to forget as well. Going on. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted with honor. The wicked will see it and be grieved. He will gnash his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, please bless us, O God, with more faith that we would grow up and be like these Bereans and that we would mature and leave behind all the idolatrous ways of the Thessalonians. And that in this, Father, we would find joy where we find the gap between our affections and the actions that we're called to. And that we would look to you in faith, confessing our sin to you, acknowledging that we have a small faith, and stepping into action, not minding the coldness of the water, anticipating you to part the dark red sea of our souls and bring forth your life more and more in us and through us, O oh God, unto fruitfulness, increased faith, increased joy in your word individually and in our families, and increased uprightness and righteousness and generosity and humility in the earth unto the victory of your great and glorious kingdom in all the earth, Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.